Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 65 of Yins Are Good, the podcast that shares and celebrates all of the good stuff that's going on out there and all of the good people who are making that good stuff happen. I am your host, Tressa Glover, and I'm so happy to be sharing another episode with you. I'm so happy that you're listening in. So thank you for being here, for sharing your time. And, okay, I have a little project for us to work on. A little uh, Yins Are Good community gratitude project. Let's call it that. So, you know, over several episodes um, and also on our social media, you know, from time to time, in addition to just asking you to share acts of kindness you've experienced, right? Or that, you know, you've witnessed or people you want to thank for making a difference in your life or just any good deeds going on. In addition, from time to time, there will be a prompt like, I want to thank blank for blank, right? So this is, you know, along those lines. I want to gather together thoughts from, as I said, this Yins Are Good community. And so each episode... I'm going to give a specific prompt, and please do send your thoughts to yinsaregood at gmail.com, and we're going to do something fun with them. So for this week, the prompt is, (laughs) what tradition in your life are you grateful for? What tradition are you, my yinsers, grateful for? So please send your thoughts along to us, as well as any others, as you know, to that yinsaregood at gmail.com. Also, I'm going to share with you too, I'm just, I love this. So you may recall our friends at Thrive Pittsburgh. I have a little update for you regarding the work that they're doing, just incredible work. And they were back in episode 19. Can you believe it? So as you may recall, uh, I spoke with Pauline Spring from Thrive. And Thrive is dedicated to providing services to families seeking refuge or asylum in Pittsburgh, no matter what the situation or circumstance. And hundreds of Afghans have arrived in Pittsburgh recently. And among them are several soon-to-be mothers and they are excitedly awaiting the arrival of their little ones. And so Thrive was asked if they could perhaps provide an American-style baby shower for these moms-to-be. And of course, Thrive said, absolutely, what can we do? So if you go to their website, thrivepittsburgh.org, and it's in our show notes, as well, you will get all of the details. And there's a wish list so you can sign up and you can help these moms, help these families to get these childcare supplies that they really do need, especially, and of course, each of these families has their own story. Um, But on their website, they actually talk about one family in particular who had to, they had to leave suddenly last year during the evacuation from Kabul. And their situation, the dad of the family was a teacher in Afghanistan, and he had excellent English skills, and he volunteered to help the United States military as a translator. 
they had to flee. Uh, he's now currently working in a factory here trying to support the family. And they have three kids uh, already. And their fourth is on the way. So if you have a minute and would like to go to Thrive Pittsburgh's website and see how you can help. And they're taking these donations, these gifts through the end of this year. So through December 31st. So you also have plenty of time for that. Now, who is the guest on the show today? (gasps) Victory Farms. Are you familiar? Well, first, I need to give a shout out to David Mitchell from Computer Reach. And you may remember him. uh, Computer Reach we featured back in episode 51. And David sent me an email and suggested, he said, are you familiar with Victory Farms? Oh my gosh, they're so amazing. They're so awesome. And I said, thank you, David. Let me talk to them, please. So today uh, we do have, oh my gosh, I had a ball. I got to meet Lindsay um, Dessler, who is the co-founder and head of operations for Victory Farms. I got to meet her in person. I got a tour of the farm. I got to ride in a golf cart. Okay, so right there, you know it was a good trip. Honestly, though, what a just, we, and I was there for a couple hours and could have talked for much longer with her. But they are a CSA, which is a community, well, which is Community Supported Agriculture. So they're a CSA program. I cannot wait for you to hear right from her all about them. So that is coming up. And name that neighborhood. You know it. Don is waiting anxiously (laughs) to see how he will do this week. And so I think, I think that's what I have for you at this time. So we should get to it. Yes, let's get to the good stuff. Hmm. Yeah, so uh, I had been a labor organizer for the past 10 years uh, before 2020. Hmm. And... uh, uh, it was great work. I loved it. I organized with the Carnegie uh, Library workers, uh, the yeah. University of Pittsburgh faculty that just unionized. I mm-hmm. got to work on all these campaigns. But um, being, you know, a labor organizer, you're like constantly in your car. You're in constant <laughs> like stressful like situations, and then often you're eating like crap. Uh, <laughs> and I really was pretty abusive to my body for, you know, most of my college years. And uh, during the college years, I was when I was like most involved with labor organizing, but probably Mm -hmm. about 2013, I started to develop chronic pain um, uh, in my back. And it took like five years to get diagnosed. I was Mm -hmm. diagnosed. That's quite a fridge. So Lindsay was like, I'm going to put this in the fridge. Meanwhile, it's a huge walk-in. Yeah. Love it. Cool. I love it. Okay. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so it took years to get diagnosed with fibromyalgia. It spread from my back throughout the rest of my body. And the week before the pandemic was when I got diagnosed. And then all of the services I was using to drag my body through just work Mm -hmm. day to day Mm -hmm. like we're gone and 
by this time the the pain was like everywhere throughout my body I lost the ability to walk for a little bit like it mm. it felt like there was like cement in my it was like drying cement was like my body and oh. every movement was like painful and slow so like diagnosis happened and the entire world is like falling apart and I'm 25 like I feel I felt robbed because you know the first like 10 years of my adult life was doing like ostensibly pretty like ethical stuff yeah and I was like universe like what the heck is this and I uh, fortunately was was able to go on family medical leave act and get like intensive outpatient therapy started yoga and all that but one of the main and most like significant factors was I started paying attention to my diet and uh, I started eating almost exclusively from my garden mm. and Don Kretschmann's organic uh, CSA and uh, I uh, like started to have less pain and it, like it took months of healing and it's mm -hmm. not like gone or anything it takes a lot of like still like to do yoga every day I have to eat well focus on stress rest and all that started to volunteer here on the farm with mm -hmm. Don uh, Crutchman and Angel and Daniel some of his workers um, and it wasn't long after that that I found out that Don is retiring he's 74 oh um, and it, he couldn't find anyone to take the farm uh, mm. who was willing to grow organically who is local who is competent and like he's built an incredible ecosystem here mm. and maintained it for the past 40 years he's one of the first organic farmers in the country no really yeah oh my god and uh, so uh, doing like good agricultural practices as opposed to like industrial agriculture that saps a lot of the land and nutrients mm -hmm. it takes years to build up that soil type of soil health. And so like, it felt like the universe like connected us. I was right? gonna like, say the universe was like, hang on, I there's a, like, I'm, I, there was a plan here. Yeah, like, <laughs> right. you know, I was like, you know, when I was like in pain and everything, mm -hmm. I was like, universe, please help me figure out like, what am I gonna do <laughs> with this? And just like right after that, like started to learn about regenerative agriculture and the, uh, promise it has for individual human health, mm -hmm. um, the promises it has for environmental health, uh, community resiliency in the face of climate change. There are so many different factors yeah. of like, good here. Yes. <laughs> yes. But yeah, so uh, after volunteering, Don, like Don, you know, at the end of the year, put out this article, uh, might have been like January of 2021, uh, that was in the Post-Gazette called like The Last Harvest, going mm. on about he couldn't find anyone. And part of it's also like, you know, a generational communication gap. And uh, I think that's been a part of the not being able to find someone to take it over. Yeah. And coming out of labor union organizing, you really learn to deal with many types of people and, uh, and have a person out like learn how to communicate in a way that's like 
all right, well, like, let's, let's see how we can learn from this. And um, I had a lot of really good mentors when I was first becoming a labor organizer who mm-hmm. taught me the difference between, like, just, like, an old person and, like, a movement elder. And an elder is someone who's often, like, patient and passing on to the next generation and like Hmm. really trying and you know it's something you develop between the two generations Hmm. (laughs) and I feel like Don has started to really develop that relationship with us it's taken a lot of time and communication yeah yeah. um yeah so I got in contact with Don uh and was very persistent and (laughs) 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 because like I wasn't born with a lot of land or money or anything like that. Most farmers in the country who are under the, you know, who are younger, Mm -hmm. uh, don't own their own land. Uh, And so this, like, is emblematic of a larger national phenomenon that's happening right now. Yeah. Where uh, back in the 1970s, the uh, state was told farmers either get big or get out. Um, you can either expand your operation to be industrial agriculture or get out. And so a lot of family farms uh, over the past few generations, like the kids didn't learn farming. They went off to go do something else yeah. uh, because there wasn't money in it anymore. It wasn't good jobs. And uh, so now <laughs> the average age of, the far- of farmers in this country mm-hmm. is over 65. And we don't have the next generation of young farmers to farm that knowledgeably and responsibly in a way that's like good for the environment. Mm. And so seeing that (laughs) and being like, oh, we really need a lot more young farmers who like care about this and Mm -hmm. are willing to take the time and energy to learn the ecological practices that can help make us more resilient from climate change. And yeah, yeah, so it's our second year (laughs) uh, farming. Our goal is to kind of do what Don did. He, let me tell you a little bit about his backstory. Sure. Uh, Anti-Vietnam War pro- protester, hippie kind of guy back in the, you know, back in the day, him and his wife. He, like, studied, I think, physics, didn't want to use his physics degree to go kill people on the other side of the world. Then shortly after that became an organic farmer, didn't want to use war chemicals in the ground because a lot of... Uh, industrial fertilizers are also what we use to kill people because <laughs> they're high in oh. nitrogen. They're often like a lot of our fertilizers after World War II yeah. were just remnants of uh, like bombs, <laughs> like high nitrogen, like bombs. And instead it's like, oh, high nitrogen, like chemical synthetic fertilizer. We could just like dump this into the soil because nitrogen, like plants need nitrogen. And like, I it's... did not know that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. okay. Um, like yeah, he was like eh, maybe he's not. like no, maybe I not don't that, think, no. maybe not that. <laughs> and or the organic movement, the t- the term comes out of Pennsylvania, uh, on the eastern side of the state. There's this institute called the Rodale Institute. Their focus is on like farming ecologically, not just in a way that's like neutral, like organic. Uh, is you know you're either maintaining the soil or hopefully building soil carbon, but you're doing that. You're not spraying pesticides. It's like setting that basic minimum floor. Mm-hmm. Um, so like if you're buying something organic, mm-hmm. you're, you can be pretty sure there's not pesticides on it is mm-hmm. what that kind of is. Um, the Rodale Institute helped kind of coin some of those standards 
and help push them nationally. They've come up with a new standard that's like the next step, which is organic regenerative, which includes not just like maintaining soil health, but actually like putting organic matter and carbon, like sequestering that out of the atmosphere into the soil, which helps the soil life and makes your food more nutritious also. Like they, they conduct so many different like cool studies because yeah. like, so that was something really important that I learned in this whole process is the amount of time after your food is harvested affects the nutrients that are in your food. Hmm. Um, so if your food is being harvested in California and then sitting in a cooler and then getting trucked and then sitting in another cooler in a grocery store, all that time you're losing a lot of nutrients. <laughs> right. And even to begin with, we need plants to make those like nutrients accessible to us and let that are you know we eat micronutrients mm -hmm. all that for our bodies to function but you know plants don't just like drag that out of the soil willy nilly like they ha often have to form relationships symbiotic relationships with organisms in the soil who make those minerals and all of that accessible to the root systems to plants let me let me let's go over to F three, which is our Ooh. field. We're gonna take the golf cart over there. Oh my gosh, we're getting in a golf cart. This is the best part. Already, I know it. And how big is the farm altogether? So the farm is eighty acres. Okay. Uh, Forty of it is wooded. Um, like the, the beautiful forest, yeah. Uh, and uh, forty of it is available for agricultural production, either rather that be orchard or uh, like vegetable production. Okay. Um, one of those like good environmental practices that Don does and that we're trying to learn is crop like rotation. It's a four-year-long rotation. So if you're growing something in one field you're growing something the next year to often replace whatever nutrients that those plants like took up. So uh, yeah. um, like if you're growing food one year uh, in one of these fields, next year I'll want to plant like alfalfa or something because mm -hmm. uh, it creates a lot of uh, like organic matter both in the, like the roots are huge. It traps a lot of that organic matter and puts it back into the ground through the root system. Yeah, yeah. Or, um, like, you know, it also grows as like a plant and you can return a lot of that micronutrients uh, back by uh, like filling it down or pushing it down or prepping yeah. it. Or, uh, oh my gosh, is this gorgeous. Right? Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh, the sunsets here are incredible. Oh. So this is the field we call F3. They're each labeled, mm -hmm. so you can do rotations each year. Okay. Um, so we'll take a walk through a couple different rows. Okay. So when I was wondering about sequestering, yes, the, like you mentioned way before, as far as the organic, regenerative, mm -mm, what was the second word? Regenerative organic. <laughs> oh, okay. I had it flipped. Yeah. Yeah. Organic regenerative, regenerative organic, always <laughs> close enough. So, um, something at the Rodale Institute they do is seed clover in all of their rows. Mm -hmm. um, either uh, like red clover or white dutch because it helps with weed suppression. 
and you uh, you don't want bare soil. You want as little bare soil as possible because that allows for erosion. Mm-hmm. By putting down like a cover crop like clover, mm-hmm. it's not going to like overtake your vegetables, but I uh, like it still keeps the ground covered, helps protect from erosion, and uh, you know you have all this organic matter that's growing that in the winter will die back and add all of that will be biodegraded into the ground and add to that sequestering of carbon. Um, But yeah, we've got kale, collards, brassicas, cabbages, tomatoes, uh, tomatillos. Yes. Yeah. So if people, some listeners are thinking, okay, and you, oh yeah, well tell us first of all, so where exactly are you? I mean... I'm with you right now, but yeah. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> where am I? Zelianople, which mm-hmm. is uh, just about 40 minutes north of the city, just past Cranberry. It's an incredible little. It's so farm. gorgeous. Let's talk about because you had mentioned CSA. Yeah. So community-supported agriculture is a model that makes farming more sustainable for both the farmer and the community. So historically, farmers have planted a crop and hoped that people would buy it. Hmm. And that really puts you at the whim of, uh, you know, if you're on a large scale, the market speculators who are like, oh, everyone grew corn this year. Price of corn's gone down. All that labor and time you put in, turns out you're not actually going to get compensated fairly for your time and labor and then a lot of farmers like especially in industrial farmers are just like trapped in a continual cycle of debt where they have to continue to produce for these companies because oh the prices were too low and you are not like oh you didn't like your corn's not worth enough that you just grew a ton of acres of the only way to like continue surviving is a subsidy or something like that mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and it puts a lot of farmers historically in debt um even if you're on like a smaller scale like you know and you're just doing say farmers markets mm-hmm. you know you might grow all this stuff and then get a bunch of rainy farmers markets and you don't sell enough or like you know you're at the whim of like the weather the temperature all of this stuff mm-hmm. whereas with community supported agriculture it's an agreement with the farmer and the people in their community. So it's direct direct to consumer, quote unquote, as they call it. Mm-hmm. And so it takes out all of the middlemen of like the grocery store who's also taking a cut, the uh, uh, trucking company who's also taking a cut, the uh, like all these other, like especially in, in like industrial agriculture, you've got a ton of different steps to the process. Mm-hmm. And at each phase of the process, they're uh, like charging essentially at the end of it, the customer mm-hmm. for more and more that they take off the top. And often you see that just go into like big CEO grocery store pockets. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas with a community supported agriculture program, my, like everyone who joins knows that for the next, for, for us, it's 28 weeks, but however many weeks, uh, they're going to get a box of produce in season, what is growing, the freshest you can get we harvest it like that week and uh, so that way you know if we have a crop fail like we had all of our napa cabbages this year Mm -hmm. decimated oh no um it was really sad but if we have one crop get destroyed by something Mm -hmm. i don't lose everything and neither do the customers 
um, who have committed to say like, hey, we're, you know, we're paying, a lot of them pay up front so you mm -hmm. can buy your seeds and all of your stuff ahead of time, which you have to do. A lot of farmers will tend to front load the cost in buying their seeds and stuff like that and hope it works out. Whereas with a CSA, you know, people in the community are like, okay, I'm paying you so you can plant your seeds, plant all of your stuff and account for your budget mm -hmm. ahead of time. So you're not like left in the winter and at the end of the year in poverty. <laughs> and yeah. it allows us to price our stuff appropriately to pay our workers like actually a good wage and not slave and be in slave conditions mm -hmm. which is another big part of that regenerative organic we're really trying to strive for is the labor labor rights aspect of it yeah um it's got labor rights uh animal health and welfare and soil building so we talk about communities so what's the first step if you're interested you would say you yeah. would do what so let's say I'm a CS, like I want to become a CSA customer. Mm -hmm. I go to the Victory Farms website mm -hmm. and I sign up for a small, medium, large box. Um, and each week I like, my, like, for example, I live in Swissvale. My pickup day is Thursday. So I go to the porch of one of my neighbors every single week and I pick up my CSA crate, which has vegetables that were all freshly picked and grown. And I take that home and uh, next week I bring back that empty crate, leave it there, pick up my new crate with my name on it. And each week you just swap out the vegetables and crates. We wanna make it more of a, like, you know your farmer, not just like, it's not just some person yeah. You know, you, you know your farmer. And mm -hmm. so if we have a crisis like during COVID or something like that, you know where your food is going to come from. Yeah. If there's like food supply chain shortages as there are right now and prices are going up and mm -hmm. all of that stuff, like you, you know that your food comes locally and that you're like going to be able to be more resilient in the face of climate change. It was like, yeah. you know, we're going to see a lot more climate refugees we're going to see a lot more climate crises over the next mm -hmm. few years and so by growing our food locally we're able to help stabilize our local food economy and make sure our community is more resilient to climate change mm -hmm. um which so this and how far <clears throat> so you mentioned for example like if you live in swissvale which we've been at the swissvale market lately I, we're at the Swissville market, but our farmer's market person just broke her foot. And so oh, we no. haven't been there the last two. And I oh, listened no. to your Swissville farmer's oh. market ones. And I was like, <laughs> fancy that. <laughs> of course. Of course. So, yeah, as that example, Kay live in Swissville. So how far out can you live from where so, Victory Farms is? Is it that? Is it? Uh, yeah. So right now, I believe it's like within 50 miles of the city. We... Uh, do like deliveries on Saturdays right now. Um, mm -hmm. So that way, like we have a few folks who live up here in Zelianople. Mm -hmm. We have some folks who live all the way down in like 20 minutes south of the city. What is it? Uh, um, Peters? What do you have there? Oh, Peters Township. Is, yeah, who live yeah, in yeah, Peters yeah, yeah. Township who come to our Mount Lebanon stop. Yeah. We have people who are like in Forest Hills who come to our Millvale stop. Oh, okay, um, okay. Yeah, and so right now we're in our second year. We have just like a few pick. We have like a hundred and one customers right now. We're trying to expand our fall CSA scale up, Great. maybe a hundred and fifty. But Don fed a thousand households a week. Like, oh my that's gosh, that's like a great scale where it's like not 
too big, too industrial or anything like that, but you can still use equipment and machines to make your life so much easier. Like <laughs> literally like weeks worth of a task, like picking beans, minutes. It's ridiculous. Wow. Um, like seeding, stuff like that. Yeah. And so a lot of this seems to really make sense at like a certain scale um, of a couple, like a couple hundred CSA customers is like what we're, you know, going for, okay. trying to expand yeah. every year. Um, cause when you hit that scale, oh, look, a heron, <gasps> a heron flying. How beautiful. Right? <gasps> Gorgeous. Telling it's you, like nature planet is... in here all the time. There's like uh, yellow, like canaries and bluebirds and hummingbirds. Oh I had a God. fox, just like a fox <laughs> hop out in front of me in the field one time. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is the best thing. <laughs> like, oh wow. Like nature it's so oh my gosh it I, really yeah, is. what a it's such an amazing place to work <laughs> it's gorgeous yeah i know i just keep looking as we're talking i'm looking and i just keep finding myself i'm just turning and looking constantly i think there's a cardinal over there oh my gosh yeah oh we, so that, you haven't even seen half of it like i know this is like yeah so i love okay so now getting a better sense so folks can go online to victory well what is your victory farms there it is and then those okay those drop-offs so that's good just yeah, to give we have a sense drop -offs of drop-offs in mount lebanon squirrel hill swissvale and carrick on thursdays forest hills and deliveries on saturdays uh and then on wednesdays we do bloomfield uh highland park lawrenceville and millvale this is it's just so exciting and to be right here and to see it all how about tasting it? Do you like uh, cherry tomatoes? I love cherry tomatoes. Oh, man. Yeah, <gasps> I grow cherry tomatoes because I love to be able to be in the field and just be like... And these cabbage, they almost look fake. That sounds right? so off, like, right? They're, I mean, they're just oh, perfect. Oh, onions. They're the biggest <gasps> things. Like, oh my gosh. Like, I've never grown an onion this big. <laughs> oh my gosh. Here is so healthy. It just like pumps out incredible vegetables. Yeah. This is gorgeous. Oh my gosh, right off the vine. Are you kidding yeah. me? Oh my God. I love working in the like hoop house and oh my God. with the in the field with the tomatoes because you're just like These are so good. Did you hear me chomping? Oh my god. These are some of my favorite. This is a Sakura tomato. Sakura. Okay. The one you just had is a citrine. Okay. Okay, they're both delicious. Yeah. So you can just leave me here for a while. Right? I'll just, you know, my buffet. If people want to come up and see it, we do mm -hmm. a volunteer day once a month. Tell and us, It's yes. like our big, like, we love to show it off because it's just so many people don't get to connect with their food. And you come to the farm and you're seeing it now. You get this wow effect. Like, yeah. whoa, look at all <laughs> this nature. It is. Uh, <laughs> oh, I love that. Okay, so once a month. I believe we're going to do September 18th. We're confirming that with Don. And then uh, October is it's on the gram. It's on the gram. <laughs> yeah, our Instagram is a good spot to. Oh yes, folks okay. To definitely check us out. And we'll put all that in our show notes, listeners. Check it out. This so reminds me of growing up. My grandparents always had a garden, and my great grandparents. Mm -hmm. But because just being able to come up and just pluck these right off. Right. These are so good. I mean, I, I went mean, from a gardener to this. I didn't think I was going to have a farm for five years. And then good luck of meeting Don Crutchman and a lot of persistence. Yes. 
Um, okay. October 15th okay. and November 12th, also volunteer days. So, yeah, it's... And especially in the fall, coming up here in October. Mm-hmm. Ah, that's got to be gorgeous. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's amazing. It Also, mm-hmm. if folks are unable to, like, afford a CSA or mm-hmm. anything like that, mm-hmm. one thing we do, we have two work share days where mm. someone can come up and exchange labor helping us in the field because as you can see there is a lot (laughs) there's a lot going on this is just like we are just farming two acres this year and i bet we could probably feed like 200 households off of this maybe Mm -hmm. more Mm -hmm. but like a lot of it's like how much produce are you going to pull out of the field and at this time of year it's just like all right work share friends like come on like you pull stuff out of the field take it home volunteer days you send an organization like Take home a whole bunch oh, of stuff for idea. your org. Like, yeah, we yeah. have we have more produce than our current customers are able. Like, you know, so second year we're only at hundred, but oh please, like, this is two years. But to have hundred and one in two years, and especially during these two years, during yeah. <laughs> this time, it has to feel so good. It has to be. Yeah, we have an incredible community. Oh my gosh. Um, like especially coming out of labor organizing it's people who typically Mm. care about the way in which their food is grown yeah and then don crutchman built it's really cool to see someone from a generation that before us Mm -hmm. leave something behind to be proud of yeah and that like our generation can not only be proud of but also like continue to run with and grow and improve and be better to be part of keeping it going yeah it's like i want to actually stop a legacy uh that seems to be so prevalent of like oh well got got mine forget the next generation where and instead like what can we leave Hmm. that's beautiful for the next folks like like treat like uh it's just i gotta show you the rest of this place okay okay Um, yes yes so Oh my gosh, what fun. And a little bonus. Uh, There is some more that I'm going to share with you from my tour of Victory Farms, and that will be included in next week's episode. So stay tuned for that. Hello, Don. Hello, Tressa. <laughs> Welcome to Name That Neighborhood. How are you today? I'm great. How are yeah, you? I'm good. Yeah, where good. are we, Tressa? Word Orbis Cafe, Don. Oh, again? <laughs> yes, we are. Yeah? What are we doing? Well, this time, so listeners, I think, you know, last episode, Don mentioned, maybe we come here and then we, you know, maybe you didn't mention this during the show. Maybe it was after the show. Am I in charge of the show? <laughs> um, <laughs> But, Someone needs to be the decider today. <laughs> no idea. But we were saying, if we come here and let's share with the listeners a different, you know, what we're sampling. Yes. Each time. A sampling of their wares yes. here at Orbis. So last time, mm-hmm. you had... The ham and cheese bagel. Which was delish. Correct. Um, this time... Yes. We're each sampling a cocktail. It's true. It is true. So for those of you who may be listening for the first time, so Orbis Cafe on Washington Road in Mount Lebanon... And it's wonderful. And they, I say recently, but it's been a few months, but they now have a bar. They're open a little later in the evening. So, um, Don, what are you sampling today? I'm sampling their Moscow Mule. How is it? It's great. Yeah. Very refreshing. There it is. Uh Uh-huh. 
Tressa, am, what are you sampling? I'm having the Paloma. What is that? Funny you should ask. It involves tequila mm-hmm. and some grapefruit. Grapefruit. Okay, I'm, I'm just on my first one, everyone. <laughs> grapefruit soda. Uh-huh. So it's like a grapefruit tequila. And again, a spritz. To echo that refreshing, it's really nice and yeah. light and delightful. So we're going to do this. Yeah. Would you like to know the neighborhoods from which you are choosing? Obviously. Clearly. Forest Hills. Mm-hmm. Or Carrick. Okay. Ooh. Okay. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Cool. You feeling good about it? Um, yeah. I know about as much about each of those neighborhoods, so <laughs> they're equal in my brain at the moment. Okay. Yeah, that might bode well. Who knows? Who knows? Let's give it... I don't want to be overly confident, because the last time I was, I got the first one wrong. Mm, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I'm... I'm going in. Yeah. yeah. Love it. Let's, Let's do it. this. <laughs> Number one. In 1997, this neighborhood was named the first cool community in the northern U.S. by the U.S. Department of Energy. Forest Hills. I feel like you jinxed it. This is why I was not overly confident, Tressa. <laughs> oh, and there are four statements of fact. I did not mention that before, but oh, good. The fourth one's a little so, different. So, yeah, I've already. I feel I'm, like I'm, yeah, that yeah. now that you've set the the tone. Oh, the tone is is gonna be yeah. <laughs> well, it is Carrick. Okay. Let me tell you why. Please do. So, Cool Community is a <laughs> national recognition program for strategic tree planting. For energy conservation purposes. Ironic that the community named Forest Hills yeah, yeah. does not have more trees than Carrick. This is well, where I was going Well, that's not necessarily true. Oh. They're planting trees. Oh. All right. But, yes. So, there's partnering with con- uh, conservation organizations, community groups, and they got together and they weatherized homes and businesses, planted trees and flowers. And added elements of green building to the renovation of Carrick High School at the time. Okay. So there you go. There you go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's cool. That's all right. <laughs> so now we got... Oh, my God. I just got that one. <sighs> mm-hmm. We're going to go. Cause we're we're going to go. As you said last Maybe if episode, we do them faster... <laughs> Then. Well, and you did say last episode that number two is your favorite. It is my favorite number because yeah. you got the first one out of the way. Yeah, so now you're in it. And I, I already heard the wah, 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 That should be the sound instead. Yeah. Just your voice doing that. Yeah. That's what it says in my, that's <laughs> what it does in my head every time I get one wrong. Number two. Yeah. Starting in the last half of the 1800s, home and commercial builders in this neighborhood got the bricks they needed for their buildings from the Sankey Brick Company located on 21st Street in Pittsburgh's South Side. Um, Forest Hills. Oh no! Yeah. What's happening? I'm just going to say Forest Hills for all four (laughs) at this point and I'll be 50% correct. Yes, I think that's very good. Yeah. It's okay. It's Carrick. Okay. Sure. Okay, so we have many of these 
uh, houses, mansions even, because back in mm -hmm. the day when those houses were built, and these buildings were built with bricks manufactured, as I said, right from that area. So the Sankey Brick Company mm -hmm. was founded in the early 1860s by William Sankey, and their factory on 21st Street made bricks that were used to build Union fortifications during the Civil War. Uh, and the plant used shale quarried from the south side slopes, and that quarry was called the Brickyard. Uh, Sankey Brick Company became pioneers in automated brick production. They had all, up until that time, bricks were made by hand, of course. Mm. So, um, And along with the buildings, you know they used some for the streets. Sure. And Taking it to the streets. They sure did. And... This was an a big improvement because before then, the streets were all dirt and gravel. So mm -hmm. as you can imagine, of course, with the weather, right, you had water, yeah. cooling, very difficult to traverse. <laughs> and so actually one solution uh, on Brownsville Road in particular, they, had, they laid wooden planks down to okay. see how that might go. Yeah. But then they thought paving bricks, that'll do it. And Who was this they? <laughs> I don't know, but that's you how just they said quoted. it. But that's how they paving they, bricks. They will do it. I feel like you you just turned into like an old timey salesman. And I pointed my finger they in the did. air too. Anybody got some paving bricks, please? Two bits, two bits. <laughs> and this was at the time when rows were first being used by automobiles, so mm. it made sense because bricks are more durable. Of course, they don't wear away as quickly. Sure. But the cons. Oh boy. Brick roads very expensive to build and very slippy when wet. <laughs> which the, um, the Pittsburgh version of slippery. Thank yes. you, thank you. And of course, with our terrain here, so many hills that of course mm -hmm. that yeah. You don't want your you don't want, you don't want slick bricks. Oh no, you don't. So paving roads with asphalt was the ultimate solution. Yes. Yes. Let's go to number three. Let's, let's do it. Let's just do it. Let's do it. In 1923, Westinghouse opened a special radio facility in this neighborhood to experiment with long-distance transmissions. Led by Frank Conrad, engineers here demonstrated the vital role of high-frequency short waves in sending broadcasts around the world. Forest Hills. You are correct. Mm -hmm. Uh huh. Uh huh. True to your your promise here. Oh yeah, I'm sticking with so. Forest Hills. No, no offense to Carrick, but you done me dirty for the first two questions. <laughs> so it's Forest Hills from here on out, right or wrong. I've committed. Name that Forest Hill. Mm hmm. So now a lot of this info, I just want to give a shout out to the National Museum of Broadcasting website. Sure. For some specifics here. So. Early 1920s, picture it. Um, Sicily. So, <laughs> Sicily. When most radio engineers considered shortwaves practically useless, Frank Conrad said, uh-uh. And he demonstrated, <laughs> again, I pointed to the you finger. You were pointing with your finger. Um, yeah. Demonstrated that although shortwave signals faded relatively close to the transmitter, they became stronger at greater distances. I'm going to do a little sidebar here. And just for folks who might not know much about <laughs> Well, and Frank for those Conrad. listeners, when she said sidebar, she actually leaned to the side. <laughs> I did. Yeah. Okay. You're built for a visual medium here. <laughs> Tress. Uh, 
So Frank Conrad, uh-huh. um, Pittsburgh native, electrical engineer, but he's widely known as the father of radio broadcasting. And he was responsible for the founding of the first broadcast station in the world, KDKA. Nuh-uh. Oh, yeah, right here in Pittsburgh, of course. So just wanted to give him a little more of a shout-out there. But, so here we are, right? We're in Forest Hills. What am I talking about? So, back to those shortwaves. From a high-powered shortwave station on the Greensburg Pike in Forest Hills, Mm -hmm. shortwave broadcasts were made that were heard in Europe, Australia, South Africa, and the Antarctic. For the first time in history, a person could speak into a microphone and be heard virtually anywhere on the planet. Wow. And this was so revolutionary that radio engineers from all over Europe, including one Marconi himself. Oh, yes. Traveled to the Forest Hill Station to tour this state-of-the-art facility. From this site, Westinghouse operated the first national and worldwide radio networks sending out programs to its affiliates by shortwave, which were then rebroadcast to the public in their respective cities over the standard AM radio band. Boom. Boom. It's a mic drop moment. That's a, literally. (laughs) Is that right? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. That's a, I had no, I didn't know to that extent. I had no idea. Me neither. Uh -uh. Yeah. Learning new things. Shortwave mic drop. (laughs) Let's make that a thing. That's, yeah. I'm going to hashtag do a short wave and then a mic drop. Because <laughs> so you were waving your hands the entire wave. time that you were talking. I was. So. Short wave. Boom. <laughs> we're going to go right into number four. Now this one. The Antarctic. <laughs> <laughs> this is a little different. Yeah. <clears throat> so we're talking Forest Hills and Carrick. Together. No. Separately. One of them was named after a town in Ireland. One of them was named after a city in Queens, New York. Which is which? Oh boy. <laughs> you take so some now time I have to it. now I have to use Carrick, well, even though I, I committed to Forest Hills. I know you did. I'm going that Carrick is named after a city in Ireland and that Forest Hills is from the New York region. And you are so correct. <laughs> <laughs> So there you go. So technically, that's five statements of fact. No, that was number four. Oh, I see. Because I had to answer twice. So nice, I answered twice. (laughs) (laughs) Well. No, I'll take 50-50. It's good. Right, but that's weird because that's what you said at the beginning, that you knew equally, you knew as much about them. So there you go. There you go. Okay, so first with Carrick. So 1853, that's when the name Carrick first came around and it was when Dr. John H. O'Brien was given the opportunity to establish a post office in that neighborhood Mm -hmm. and for his work he was given the honor of naming the community and he dare say he named that neighborhood (gasps) I'm my mouth is a shortwave (laughs) mic drop how did I miss that I am my I'm speechless which isn't good for a podcast because I have to keep talking (laughs) He literally named, named that, that neighborhood. neighborhood. And um, he chose Carrick after his hometown, Carrick on Sur in Ireland. Okay. And then Forest Hills. So this area here was once known as Somerset. Uh-huh. But Forest Hills was in fact named after Forest Hills in Queens, mm-hmm. New York. 
You don't have more about that? That's all I have. (laughs) I tried to find more, but that's just, that's all I have. That's what it is. Facts are facts. You can imagine your own. That's right. And I stick to them. I thank you for this. Another enjoyable time here at Orbis Cafe. Folks, please do come down. Always a pleasure. So let's raise a glass. We're raising it. Let's clank. Maybe they'll hear it. There it is. Nice. Thank you. Another one for the books. (laughs) Bye. Bye. And on that Name That Neighborhood note, we will be bringing this episode, episode 65, to a close. I am your host, Tressa Glover. Thank you so much for listening in. Thank you for continuing to listen, for continuing to share your thoughts. And if this is your first time, welcome and thank you. And I hope maybe you'll have a chance to go back and listen to some episodes that you haven't heard yet and just listen to these stories and all of this good, good work that people right in the Pittsburgh area are doing. And a reminder, if you want to share, share with us some folks you'd like for me to feature on the show, as well as good deeds, good thoughts, good actions going on around you. Just email us, yinsaregood at gmail.com. And don't forget that prompt. What tradition are you grateful for? I'm grateful for you. And until next time, my friends, be safe, be kind, be good. Special thanks to Orbis Cafe, Don DiGiulio, and as always, for our fabulous artwork, Mike Rubino. 